And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is June the 9th. This year, year is just rocketing by. It's the 160th day of the year. 205 days remain. Of the year's over with. Now, <clears throat> it is International Dark and Stormy Day. Day of La Rioja. <clears throat> That's the anniversary when the Autonomous Communities Statute was approved. Day of Mercia. Filipino Chinese Friendship Day. National Donald Duck Day. But in spite of that, remember things aren't always what they're quacked up to be. National Earl Day. Celebrating anybody uh, named Earl. National Helen Day. National Heroes Day of Uganda. National Crew of Tux Day. National Meal Prep Day. National Mitchell Day. National No Apologies Period Day. National Sex Day. Now that's one I can get behind. National Strawberry Rhubarb Pie Day. And TT Bank Holiday. It's one of the most dangerous road racing championships on the planet. All right. In 411 B.C., the Athenian coup succeeds, forming a short-lived oligarchy. Uh, in 53 AD, Roman Emperor Nero marries Claudia Octavia. In the year 68, Nero dies by suicide after quoting Virgil's Aeneid, thus ending the Julio-Claudian dynasty and starting the civil war known as the Year of the Four Emperors. 721, Odo of Aquitaine defeats the Moors in the Battle of Toulouse. 747, Abbasid Revolution. Abu Muslim uh, Khorasani begins an open revolt against uh, Umayyad rule, which uh, is carried out under the sign of the Black Standard. 1311, Ducio's Messiah, similar artwork of the early Italian Renaissance, is unveiled and installed in uh, Siena Cathedral in Siena, Italy. 1523, the Parisian Faculty of Theology uh, finds uh, Simon de Colinas uh, for publishing the Biblical Commentary, Commentary Initiatory in uh, Quatar Evangelia by Jacques by Fevre de uh, uh, Taples. 1534, Jacques Cartier is the first European to describe and map the St. Lawrence River. 1667, the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Raid on the Medway by the Dutch fleet begins. It lasts for five days. results in the worst ever defeat of the Royal Navy. 1732, Jacques Oglethorpe, uh, excuse me, James Oglethorpe is uh, granted an oral charter for the colony of the future U.S. state of Georgia. Have to wonder if that was an error. 1772, the British schooner Gatsby is burned in Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island. 1798, Irish Rebellion of 1798, Battles of Arklow and Saintfield. 
1815, the end of the Congress of Vienna. The new European political situation is set at this meeting. 1856, 500 Mormons leave Iowa City, Iowa for the Mormon Trail. 1862, American Civil War. Stonewall Jackson concludes his successful Shenandoah Valley campaign with a victory in the Battle of Port Republic. His tactics during that campaign are now studied by militaries around the world. Had he not been shot by his own troops, things might have been different. 1863, American Civil War. Battle of Brandy Station in Virginia, the largest cavalry battle on American soil, ends uh, Confederate cavalry dominance in the Eastern Theater. 1885, Treaty of Tencent is signed to end the Sino-French War, with China eventually giving up Tonkin and Amman, most of present-day Vietnam to France. 1900, Indian nationalist Bursa Munda dies of cholera in a British prison. 1915, William Jennings Bryan resigns as Woodrow Wilson Secretary of State over a disagreement regarding the U.S.'s handling of the sinking of the Lusitania. 1922, Alain's Regional Assembly uh, convened for its first uh, plenary session in Mariham Aland. Today, the day is celebrated as Self-Government Day of Aland. 1923, Bulgaria's military takes over the government in a coup. 1928, um, King Charles Kingford Smith completes the first transatlantic flight in a Fokker trimotor monoplane, the Southern Cross. 1930, a Chicago Tribune reporter Jake Lingle is killed during a rush hour at the Illinois Central train station by Leo Vincent uh, Brothers, allegedly over a $100,000 gambling debt owed to Al Capone. Uh, Capone did not view kindly folks not paying him. 1944, World War II, 99 civilians are hung from lampposts and balconies by German troops in Thule, France, in uh, reprisal for Marcusard's attacks. Those are the partisans, don't you know? 1944, World War II, the Soviet Union invades East Karelia and the previous uh, Finnish part of Karelia occupied by Finland since 1941. 1948, foundation of the International Council on Archives under the auspices of UNESCO took place on this date. 1953, the Flint-Worcester um, tornado outbreak uh, sequence kills uh, 94 people in Massachusetts. 1954, Joseph Welch, special counsel for the U.S. Army, lashes out at Senator Joseph McCarthy during the Army McCarthy hearings, giving McCarthy the famous rebuke. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? Have you, no, have you left no sense of decency? 1957, first descent of the Broad Peak by Fritz uh, Wintersteller, Marcus Smuck, Kurt Denberger, and Herman Buell. 1959, USS George Washington is launched. It's the first nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. 1965, civilian prime minister of South Vietnam, uh, Fan Hu Quat, resigns after being unable to work with the junta, led by Nguyen Cao Ki. Also in 1965, the Vietnam War period, the Viet Cong commences combat with the Army of the Republic of Vietnam in the Battle of Dong Hao, one of the largest battles in the war. Um... 1967, Six-Day War, Israel captures the Golan Heights from Syria. Uh, 1968, President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, declares a national day of mourning following the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. 
1972, severe rainfall causes a dam in the Black Hills of South Dakota to burst. Creates a flood that kills 238 people and causes $160 million in damages in 1972 dollars. 1973, in horse racing, Secretariat wins the U.S. Triple Crown. 1978, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints opens its priesthood to all worthy men. Uh, ending a 148-year policy of uh, excluding black men. 1979, the ghost train fire at Luna Park in Sydney, Australia, kills seven. 1995, Ansett New Zealand Flight 703 crashes into the Tararua Range during approach to Palmerston North Airport on the uh, North Island of New Zealand. Four people are killed. 1999, Kosovo War, Federal Republic of Yugoslavia and NATO signed a peace treaty. 2008, two bombs explode at a train station in near Algiers, Algeria. Kills 13. 2009, an explosion kills 17 people and injures at least 46 at a hotel in Peshawar, Pakistan. 2010, at least 40 people are killed, more than 70 wounded in a suicide bombing at a wedding party in Arghandab in Kandahar. It's pretty bad when you're so upset about a wedding you have to go shoot everybody. The, uh, more often than not, within a few years, the groom wishes somebody had shot him, but you don't do that in advance. All right. All that having been said... We're going to talk about uh, about an organization that secretly runs the world. He said is the conspiracy theory. It's actually the world's most exclusive club. It's got 18 members. And they gather every other month on a Sunday evening at 7 p.m. in a conference room. Uh, in a circular tower block whose tinted windows overlook the central Basel railway station. They talk for about an hour, maybe an hour and a half. Some of those present uh, even brings uh, associates with them. But the meeting ends and the associates leave and the members themselves retire to uh, for dinner in a dining room on the 18th floor where they have served with no expenses spared some of the best food and wine that can be found. The meal normally goes on until about 11, maybe midnight, and the meal is where the real work is done. Uh, This club has been uh, holding forth at least 80 years. And the protocol and the hospitality leaves nothing to chance. Of course, anything said at the dining table is not to be repeated outside of the dining room. Hmm. Now, few of the members of this powerful organization would be recognized by people outside but they their membership includes some of the most powerful people in the world and they're almost all men and they're central bankers 
and they've come to Basel to attend the Economic Consult Consultative Committee of the Bank for International Settlements, which uh, is the bank the central banks report to. Among the members has been Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Sir Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, Mario Draghi of the European Central Bank, Zhao Chao-Kun of the Bank of China, and the central bank governors are Germany, France, Italy, Sweden, Canada, India, and, Bra India and Brazil. Uh, Jaime uh, Carriana, the former governor of the Bank of Spain, uh, and uh, for a long time the Bank of International Settlements manager, is among the number at this dinner. Now the Economic Consultative Committee, which used to be known as the G10 Governors Meeting, is the most influential of the uh, Bank of International Settlements um, numerous gatherings. It's open only to a small select group of central bankers from what are reviewed as the advanced economies. And they make recommendations on membership and organization of the three uh, Bank for International Settlement uh, Committees that deal with global financial systems and payment systems, international markets. And the committee prepares proposals for the global economy meeting and controls the agenda. Now, that particular meeting starts at 9.30 in the morning on a Monday morning in room B and lasts for about three hours. And at that meeting, the um, The group of central bank governors of the 30 countries uh, judged most important to the global economy um, kind of control what goes on. In addition to those who are present at the Sunday evening dinner, Monday's meeting also includes uh, representatives from uh, Indonesia, Poland, South Africa, Spain, Turkey, governors from 15 small countries such as Hungary and Israel and New Zealand are allowed to sit in as observers, but they're really not allowed to say anything. And the third tier of member banks, such as Macedonia and Slovakia, are not allowed to even attend. They have to uh, get what information they can at coffee and meal breaks. Then the, the governor of all 60 um, Bank of International Settlement member banks uh, enjoy a buffet lunch on the 18th floor dining room. The uh, this uh, dining room was designed by the same uh, architectural firm that built uh, what's known as the Bird Nest Stadium for the Beijing Olympics. Dining room has white walls, a black ceiling, and views over three countries: Switzerland, France, and Germany. So we're not talking about uh, sparing any expense for these uh, very powerful people. Now, at two in the afternoon, everybody goes back 
to um, room B. I mean, it's the same every year. to discuss matters of mutual interest until 5 o'clock when the meeting ends. Now the um, former president of the European Central Bank who chaired the global economy meeting his name was uh, Jean-Claude Trichet was a stickler for protocol who called the central bankers to speak in order of importance, starting with the governors of the Federal Reserve, Bank of England, the Bundesbank, and going down the hierarchy. Other um, presidents have a more, uh, shall we say, egalitarian approach. And they open the meeting for discussion and invite contributions from everybody there. Uh, keep in mind that um, even among the elite, there's a hierarchy. Now, the governor's conclaves have played a crucial role in determining the world's response to the global financial crisis. And make no mistake, there is, thanks to COVID in large part, a global financial crisis. Um Bank of International Settlements has been a very important meeting point for central bankers during the crisis, and the rationale for its existence has only increased. Um, according to some, um, what was his name? Sir Mervyn King. Uh, they had to work out what was going on, what instruments they were going to use when interest rates were close to zero, and how do they communicate? policy to the various uh, members. Now these discussions, according to the bankers themselves, have to be confidential. According to them, when you're at the top in the number one post, it can be pretty lonely at times. It's helpful to be able to meet with other number ones and say, this is my problem, what would you suggest? And being able to talk informally and openly about their experiences has been valuable. They're not speaking in a public forum. Uh, as a result, they can say what they really think, believe, and ask questions of others. Now, a few of the little tidbits about the Bank of International Settlements. All the attendees at the uh, gatherings are assured a total confidentiality, discretion, and the highest level of security. Meetings take place on several floors that are usually used only when the governors are in attendance. And they each have a dedicated office and support and secretarial staff. And even though it's in Basel, Switzerland, the Swiss authorities have no jurisdiction over this particular building. Founded by an international treaty and protected by the 1987 headquarters agreement with the Swiss government, the Bank of International Settlements enjoys similar protections to those granted to the headquarters of the UN, the International Monetary Fund, and diplomatic embassies. 
And in fact, the Swiss authorities need the permission of the BIS management to enter the bank's buildings, which are described as uh, inviolable. So they are, in effect, above the law. <coughs> the Bank of International Settlement has the right to communicate in code, send and receive correspondence in banks covered by the same protection as embassies, so they can't be opened. They're exempt from Swiss taxes. Its employees don't even have to pay income tax on their salaries. And these salaries are said to be quite generous, designed to compete with the private sector. The... Uh, in fact, in 2011, the general manager's salary was uh, 763,930 Swiss francs. While department heads were paid 587,640 francs, uh, Swiss francs per annum. And they get allowances on top of that. The bank's uh, legal privileges also extend to uh, its staff and directors. Senior managers enjoy a special status, similar to that of diplomats, while carrying out their duties in Switzerland, which means their bags can't be searched unless there is uh, uncontrovertible evidence of uh, blatant criminal activity and their papers can't be searched. Central bank governors traveling to Basel for the bi-monthly meetings enjoy the same status while in Switzerland. All bank officials are immune under Swiss law for life for all the acts carried out during the discharge of their duties. Now, the bank is, as you might guess, a popular place to work, and not just because of the salaries. There are about 600 members of the staff that come from 50 countries. The atmosphere is multinational, cosmopolitan, although um, it is very Swiss, emphasizing the bank's hierarchy. And like many of those working for the UN or the International Monetary Fund, some of the staff, uh, especially senior managers, are driven, allegedly, by a sense of mission that they're working for a higher celestial purpose and are immune from normal considerations of accountability and transparency. So this organization teaches its senior employees they are literally above the law. Now, the bank's management has tried to plan for every eventuality so that the Swiss police don't have to be called. Headquarters has high-tech sprinkler systems with multiple backups, in-house medical facilities, and its own bomb shelter in the event of a terrorist attack or an armed revolt. And uh, the organization's assets aren't subject to civil claims under Swiss law, and as a result, can't be seized for any reason. Now, the Bank of International Settlements strictly guards the banker's secrecy. The minutes, agenda, and actual attendance list of the global economic uh, meeting or the, are not released in any form. This is because no official minutes are taken, although the bankers sometimes do take their own notes. And sometimes there'll be a brief press conference or statement issued, but there's never any details released. This tradition of privileged confidentiality reaches back to the, when the bank was formed. The, uh, according to one American official in 1935, the quietness of Basel and its absolute non-political character provides a perfect set setting for these uh, equally quiet non-political gatherings. 
And you can't tell me that it's non-political. That such a thing does not exist. The regularity of the meetings and their almost unbroken attendance by practically every member of the board makes such that their rally attacked any but the most meager notice in the press. And for over, eight, for over 40 years, up until 1975, nothing changed. Charles Kuhn, the former foreign exchange chief of the New York Federal Reserve, attended the governor's meetings from 1960 to 1975. And the bankers who were allowed inside the inner sanctum of the governor's meeting uh, trusted each other absolutely. And however much money was involved, no agreements were ever signed, no memorandum of understanding ever initialized. The word of each official was sufficient. There was never any disappointments. They abided by their gentlemen agreements. So the question becomes, what does this mean for the rest of us? Bankers have been gathering confidentially uh, since money was first invented. Central bankers like to view themselves as the high priest of finance, so to speak, as technocrats overseeing arcane monetary rituals and financial liturgy understood only by a small, self-selecting elite. But in actuality, the governors who meet in Basel every other month are actually public service. Servants. Can't talk. Their salaries, airplane tickets, hotel bills, pensions, when they retire, are paid out of the public funds. National reserves held by central banks are public money, in actuality, the wealth of the nations. The central bankers' discussions at the Bank of International Settlements, the information that they share, the policies that are evaluated, the opinions that are exchanged, and the resulting decisions that are taken are profoundly political. Central bankers whose independence is constitutionally protected control monetary policy in the developed world. They manage the supply of money to national economies. They set interest rates, thus providing the value of our savings and investments. They decide whether to focus on austerity or growth. In actuality, they shape the lives of every man, woman, and child in the countries they represent. Now, the... Bank of International Settlements' tradition of secrecy reaches back many decades. Uh, during the 1960s, the, the bank hosted the London Gold Pool. Eight countries pledged to manipulate the gold market to keep the price at around $35 an ounce. That was in line with the, previous, uh, the provisions of the Bretton Woods Accord that governed the post-World War II international finance system. And although the London Gold Pool doesn't exist anymore, its successor is the Markets Committee meets every other month on the occasion of the governor's meeting to discuss trends in the financial markets. Officials from 21 central banks attend these meetings, and the committee releases occasional papers, but its agenda and discussions always remains... <coughs> excuse me. ...remains secret. Nowadays, the countries represented at the global economy meetings together account for about uh, four-fifths of the global gross domestic product, most of the produced wealth of the world, according to the uh, Bank of International Settlements' own statistics. According to the economists, central bankers are now more powerful than politicians, holding the destiny of the global economy in their hands. So you have to ask yourself, how did such a result come about? 
Now, the Bank of International Settlements, which is the world's most secretive global financial institution, is entitled to much of the credit for this from its first day of existence. It's dedicated itself to furthering the interest of central banks and building the, the new architecture of transnational finance. And it spawned a new class of close-knit global technocrats whose members glide between highly paid positions at the Bank of International Settlements, International Monetary Fund, and Central and Commercial Banks. Now, the actual founder of this uh, cabal of technocrats uh, was uh, Per Jacobson, the Swedish economist who uh, served as the uh, Bank of International Settlements economic advisor from 1931 to 1956. Now, while the title is not really descriptive of what he did, his power and reach were... Uh, should not be underestimated. Enormously influential, well-connected, and highly regarded by his peers, he wrote the first uh, annual reports, which were and remain essential reading throughout the world's treasuries. He was an early supporter of European federalism. He argued against inflation, excessive government spending, and state intervention in the economy. He uh, left the Bank of International Settlements in 1956 to take over the International Monetary Fund. And... The principles he laid down still shapes the world. The consequences of his um, mix of economic liberalism, price obsession, and dismantling of national sovereignty uh, play out nightly in the European news bulletins on our television screens. Clearly, since he wanted to dismantle national sovereignty, he was a supporter of the concept that became known as the One World Government which, of course, has the bankers running everything. Now, the defenders of the Bank of International Settlements deny the organization is a secretive. Bank archives are open, and researchers can consult most documents that are more than 30 years old. And the archives, archivists are helpful, professional, very cordial. The bank's website includes all its annual reports that are downloadable, well as uh, numerous policy papers produced by the bank's highly regarded research department. It publishes detailed accounts of the securities and derivatives markets and international banking statistics. Of course, these are largely compilations and analysis of information already in the public domain. The details of the bank's own core activities, including much of its banking operations for its customers, central banks, and international organizations, still remain secret. Global economy meetings and other crucial financial gatherings take place at Basel, such as the Markets Committee, remain closed to outsiders. And private individuals cannot hold an account with the Bank of International Settlements unless they work for the bank. The bank's uh, opacity, lack of accountability, and ever-increasing influence raises a number of questions, and not just about monetary policy, but about transparency, accountability, and how power is exercised in our democracies. Now, most folks don't know what the Bank for International Settlements actually is. Um, it, in spite of the fact it's 
so powerful. It literally keeps a low profile. It's the most important bank in the world and predates both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And for many decades, it's been at the center of a global network of money, power, and covert global influence. It was founded in 1930, ostensibly set up as part of the young plan to administer German reparations payments for the First World War. The key architects of the creation of the bank was uh, Montague Norman, who was the governor of the Bank of England, and Algemar Slack, the president of the Reichsbank, who described uh, the uh, Bank of International Settlements as his bank. Its founding members were the central banks of Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Belgium, and a consortium of Japanese banks. Now, shares in the bank were offered to the Federal Reserve, but the U.S. at the time, suspicious of anything that might infringe on its national sovereignty, refused its allocation. Instead, a consortium of commercial banks uh, took advantage of the shares. J.P. Morgan, First National Bank of New York, First National Bank of Chicago. The real purpose of the Bank of International Settlements was detailed in its statutes. Specifically, it's supposed to promote the cooperation of central banks and Provide additional facilities for international financial operations. It was the culmination of a decades-old dream of the central bankers. They wanted their own bank, powerful, independent, and free from politicians and nosy reporters. And uh, most felicitous of all, it was self-financing and would be in perpetuity. Its clients were its own founders and shareholders, the central banks. During the 1930s, the Bank of International Settlements was the central meeting place for a cabal of central bankers dominated by Norman and Schock. They literally rebuilt Germany. New York Times described Algemar uh, Schock as uh, the genius behind the resurgent German economy, the Iron World pilot of Nazi finance. And during the war, the Bank of International Settlements became a, an arm of the Reichsbank, accepting looted Nazi gold and carrying out foreign exchange deals for Nazi Germany. Bank's alliance with Berlin was known in Washington and, and London. But the need for the bank to keep functioning to keep the new channels of transnational finance open was the, about the only thing all sides agreed on. And Basel was the perfect location. It was perched on the northern edge of Switzerland and sits almost on the French and German borders. Uh, a few miles away, Al Nazi and Allied soldiers were fighting and dying, but business continued. And board members were suspended during World War II, but relations between the staff of the belligerent nations was cordial and professional and productive. National, inside the, the walls of the bank, nationalities were irrelevant. Relating on loyalty was to international finance. The president at that time, Thomas McKittrick, was an American. Roger Alboin, the general manager, was French. Paul Heckler, the assistant general manager, was a member of the Nazi party and signed his correspondence, Heil Hitler. Uh, Raphael Pilotti, the secretary general, was Italian. Per Jacobson, the bank's influential economic advisor, was Swedish. And uh, the deputies of of uh, Jacobson and Pallotti were British. After 1945, five uh, directors, including Hazemar Sock, were charged with war crimes. 
Germany lost the war, it's true, but they won economic peace in large part thanks to the Bank of International Settlements. International stage, contacts, banking networks, legitimacy that the Bank of International Settlements provided to the Reich Bank and into its successor banks helped ensure the continuity of immensely powerful financial and economic interests from the Nazi era into the present uh, era. For the first 47 years of its existence, from 1930 to 1977, the bank was based in a former hotel near the Basel Central Railway Station. The bank's entrance was tucked away by a chocolate shop, and only a small notice confirmed that the that narrow doorway opened into the Bank of International Settlements. Bank's managers believed that those who needed to know where it was would find it, and the rest of the world didn't need to know. And inside the building, little has changed over the decades. It provided the Spartan accommodations of a former Victorian-style hotel whose single and double bedroom has been transformed into offices simply by removing the beds and putting in desks. It moved to its current headquarters at two central bond plots in 1977. It didn't go far. Now overlooks the Basel Central Station. And nowadays its main mission, in its own words, is threefold. To serve central banks in their pursuit of monetary and financial stability, foster international cooperation, and act as a bank for central banks. It also hosts much of the practical and technical infrastructure that the global network of central banks and their commercial counterparts need to function smoothly. And it has two linked trade rooms, the Basel headquarters and the Hong Kong regional office. It buys and sells gold and foreign exchange for its clients, provides asset management, and arranges short-term credit to central banks that may need it. It's a unique institution, an international organization, an extremely profitable and powerful bank and a research institution founded and protected by international treaties. As I say, it is actually above the law. It's accountable to its customers and shareholders, the central banks, but also guides their operations. Main task of a central bank, according to the Bank of International Settlements, is to control the flow of credit and the volume of currency in circulation, which they say will ensure a stable business climate and to keep exchange rates within manageable uh, bands to ensure the value of a currency and so smooth international trade and capital movements in a globalized economy, it swears that this is crucial, where markets react in microseconds, perceptions of economic stability and value are almost as important as reality itself. It helps to supervise commercial banks, although it doesn't have any legal power over them. The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, based at the Bank of International Settlements regulates commercial banks' capital and liquidity requirements. It requires banks to have a minimum capital of 8% of risk-weighted assets when lending, meaning if a bank has a risk-weighted asset of $100 million, it has to maintain at least $8 million in capital. Now, the committee, of course, has no powers of enforcement, but it does have uh, what you might call enormous moral authority. This regulation is so powerful, the 8% principle is set in the national law, according to uh, a number of uh, insiders. It's like voltage. Voltage has been set at 220. You can decide on 95 volts, but it wouldn't work. In theory, sensible housekeeping and mutual cooperation overseen by the Bank of International Settlements 
It's supposed to keep the global financial system functioning smoothly. Doesn't always, but that is the belief. And rea the reality is that we move beyond recession into a deep structural crisis, one fueled by the bank's greed and rapacity, which threatens all our financial security. This is in the 1930s. Parts of Europe face economic collapse. The Bundesbank and the European Central Bank, two of the most powerful members of the Bank of International Settlements, have driven the mania for austerity that's already forced one European country, Greece, to the edge. Um, aided by the venality and corruption of the country's ruling class. The old order is creaking as political and financial institutions corroding from inside. From Oslo to Athens, the far right is resurgent, fed in part by soaring poverty and unemployment. Anger and cynicism are corroding citizens' faith in democracy and the rule of law. Once again, the value of property and assets is disappearing before the owner's eyes. European country, uh, currency is threatened with breakdown while those with money seek safe haven in Swiss francs or in gold. The young, the talented, and the mobile are fleeing their home countries for new lives abroad. And the powerful forces of international capital that brought the Bank of International Settlements into being and granted the bank its power and influence are winning once again. Now, the Bank of International Settlements sits at the apex of an international financial system that is falling apart, but its officials argue it doesn't have the power to act as an international financial regulator, but it can't escape its responsibilities for the Eurozone crisis. From the very first agreements in the late 40s on multinational, multilateral payments to the establishment of the Europe Central Bank in 1998, the Bank of International Settlements has been at the heart of the European integration project providing technical expertise and the financial mechanisms for currency harmonization. During the 50s, it managed the European Payments Union, which internationalized the continent's payment system. It hosted the Governor's Committee of European Economic Community Central Bankers, set up in 1964, which coordinated trans-European monetary policy. And during the 1970s, it ran what was called the SNAKE, a mechanism by which European currencies were held in exchange rate bands. During the 80s, it hosted the Dolores Committee, whose report in 1988 laid out the path to European Monetary Union and the adoption of a single currency. And it was there at the birth of the European Monetary Institute, the precursor to the European Central Bank. The uh, European Monetary Institute's president was Alexandre Lamfalusi, one of the world's most influential economists. He was the one known as the father of the euro were joining the European Monetary Institute in 1994. He had worked at the uh, Bank of International Settlements for 17 years, as a first as an economic advisor and then as the bank's general manager. Well, though most considered a staid, secretive organization, it's proved surprisingly nimble. It survived the first global depression, the end of the reparations payments, and the gold standard, which were two of its main reasons for existence, I might add. The rise of Nazism, the Second World War, the Bretton Word Accord, the Cold War, the financial crisis of the 80s and 90s, the birth of the IMF and the World Bank, and the end of communism. According to Malcolm Knight, who was manager from 2003 to 2008, it's encouraging to see that by remaining small, flexible, and free from political interference, 
The bank has throughout its history succeeded remarkably well in adapting itself to evolving circumstances. But I would argue that there is no way in the world it has been free from political interference. It interferes through the manipulation of the uh, financial markets. The bankers see themselves as the only ones who should be ruling, and they act in accordance with that belief. The bank has made itself a central pillar of the global financial community. As well as the global economy meetings, it hosts four of the most important international committee dealings with uh, gold banking, the Basel Committee on Bank Supervision, the Committee on the Global Financial System, the Committee on Payment and Settlement System, and the Irving Fischel Committee, which deals with central banking statistics. And it also hosts three independent organizations, two groups dealing with insurance and the Financial Stability Board. Um, the Financial Stability Board, which coordinates national financial authorities and regulatory policies, is already being spoken of as the fourth pillar of the global financial system after the Bank of International Settlements, International Monetary Fund, and the commercial banks. It's the uh, bank, the um, bank of International Settlements is now the world's 30th largest holder of gold reserves. It has 119 metric tons at the time these statistics were put together, more than Qatar, uh, Brazil, or Canada. Membership of the Bank of International Settlements remains a privilege rather than a right. The Board of Directors is responsible for admitting central banks judged to make a substantial contribution to international monetary cooperation into the bank's activities. In fact, China, India, Russia, and Saudi Arabia joined only in 1996. And the bank has opened offices in Mexico City and Hong Kong, but remains very Eurocentric. Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Macedonia, Slovenia, and Slovakia, which totals uh, 16.2 million people, have been admitted, while Pakistan, who has 169 million, has not. North Kazakhstan, which is a powerhouse of Central Asia, and Africa, only Algeria and South Africa are members. Nigeria, which has the continent's second largest economy, hasn't been admitted. And the Bank of International Settlements defenders say it demands high governance standards from new members, and when the national banks of countries such as Nigeria and Pakistan reach those standards, they'll be considered for membership. Well, considering its pivotal role in the transnational economy, it certainly has a very low profile. Back in 1930, a New York Times reporter noted the culture of secrecy at the Bank of International Settlements was so strong he wasn't permitted to look inside the boardroom, even after the directors had left. And uh, it should be noted, very little has changed. Journalists aren't allowed inside the headquarters while the global economy meeting is underway. And Bank of International Settlement officials rarely speak on the record, and reluctantly, uh, if they do speak to members of the press, the strategy seems to work. The Occupy Wall Street movement, the unglobalizers, uh, social network protesters have ignored the Bank of International Settlements. Central Blumplatz II in Basel is quiet and tranquil. No demonstrators gathered outside the headquarters. No protesters camped out in the park and no lively reception committees for the world's central bankers. Well, as the world's economy goes from crisis to crisis, financial institutions are scrutinized as ever before. Legions of reporters and bloggers and investigative journalists scour the bank's every move. But somehow, apart from brief mentions on the financial page, the Bank of International Settlements has largely managed to avoid any scrutiny. At least until now.
Now, the interesting thing about the philosophy of the Bank of International Settlements is that the bankers know best. Um, now, Montague Norman, who was governor of the Bank of England in 1929, talked to Walter Layton, editor of The Economist. And uh, during Norman's term of governor, from 1920 to 1944, he's one of the most influential men in the world, an apparently permanent bastion of the global financial system. And his utterances were scoured for meaning when he was reappointed governor in 1932. The New York Times described him as overseeing Britain's invisible empire of wealth. According to the article, gold standards may come and go, but Montague Norman remains. In fact, such was his power, a single speech by him could actually move markets. In October 1932, he proclaimed at a banker's dinner in London that the world's economic disorder was beyond the control of any man, government, or country. Stocks, bonds, and the dollar all slid sharply quickly in New York. An immediate reaction to what Norman had to uh, say. Now, the economist wasn't surprised by Norman's annotated manner. Governor was a scion of an old, respected banking dynasty, but his mental state was an open secret among financial insiders. He was mercurial, to say the least, a manic depressive and a workaholic, notorious among financial insiders for his mood swings. He was introverted to the point of neurosis. Before the First World War, Norman had consulted Carl Jung, the Swiss founder of analytical psychology, to discuss a course of treatment. Unfortunately, it wasn't successful. Uh... Jung implied Norman was untreatable, which didn't help matters. And the world's most powerful banker abhorred publicity, being recognized or socializing and was prone to fainting fits, once threw an ink pot at the head of an underling who failed to meet his exacting standards. He was a very unlikely banker, more like a 17th century nobleman, according to his stepson. Always neurotic, had very bad nervous breakdowns. He was shy and a loner, had no care for conventions. Came down to dinner without socks and traveled to work on the underground, which was unusual in those days. And he didn't look the part of a sober financier with his cape, neatly trimmed Van Dyke beard and sparkling jewel type in. But despite his own flamboyant dress sense, he disapproved of showy behavior and lived very austerely and discouraged all signs of ostentation. Hated cocktail parties. His horror and publicity naturally had precisely the opposite effect. When he sailed across the Atlantic, he used an assumed name because the press covered his every move. Hordes of journalists and photographers still awaited when he disembarked in New York. Well, the months of 1929 leading up to the uh, Depression with the last hurrah of the Roaring Twenties, American bull market was still growing, share prices were rising, the value of stock in Radio Corporation of America, or RCA, Rose almost fifty percent in a single month. Even Wall Street shoeshine boys were passing on tips to their broker customers. And in August, the brokerage firm announced a new service for those heading to Europe on ocean liners, onboard trading during the crossing. Well, the, the head of the, the Economist, responding to Norman's summons, made his way to the bank's headquarters at uh, Threadneedle Street, which was the epicenter of the city, as London's financial quarter is known. 
Surrounded by a high wall covering most of a city block, the bank's headquarters were meant to impress. In fact, most said even to intimidate. Behind the giant bronze door was a complex of courtyards and banking halls and a garden with a fountain. Crowded with clerks and underlings who were bustling along the corridors. Even the terminology was regal. The bank was ruled not by a board, but by a court. Well, when the head of the economist got there, he was ushered into Norman's office where he sat at a mahogany table to sit in a wood-paneled room. And Norman wanted to talk about a new bank to be called the Bank for International Settlements. It being set up in connection with the Young Plan, the latest and hopefully final program for implementing, implementing German uh, reparation payments for the First World War. But Norman actually laid out a more ambitious idea. It'd be the world's first international financial institution, be a meeting place for central bankers, away from the demands of politicians and the prying eyes of journalists. Banks, bankers could bring some much-needed order and coordination to the world financial system. But for the idea to succeed and fulfill its potential, he needed the, the help of the, uh, the economist. Subcommittee would soon meet in Baden-Baden in Germany to draw up the bank statutes. And the editor of The Economist, Leighton, Norman said was just a man to draft a Bank of International Settlements Constitution, one that must, above all, guarantee the bank's independence from politicians. That's what he wanted, to be above the law. And that's what he got. And that's what still goes on today. And it's ignored because they stay out of the media. Well, we've come to the end of today's show. In our next show, we'll talk more about uh, some of the aspects of the Bank of International Settlements. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great weekend.